Father God, we ask that you speak to each one of us now. Speak directly to us. Speak in ways that we may hear and accept what you say. And by the power of your Spirit working in us, lay the truth of your word in our hearts. And send us on our way, rejoicing that we have been with you and that you have fed us and nourished us by your word and equipped us to serve you in the wider world. And now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You probably know that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are sometimes referred to as the synoptic Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, from the word synopsis. And this is because although each of them has some quite distinct and different material, they do share an awful lot of the same stories. For instance, the narratives that surround some of the miracles, the parables of Jesus. And they're often in the same sequence and often use the same wording. But John's gospel, by contrast, is very different. Scholars and commentators generally agree that the Gospel of John was written much later than the others. It's much more, as I'm sure you know, more discursive, it's more reflective, and it has quite a number of passages of dialogue uh, between uh, Jesus and his disciples, for instance, or between Jesus and particular individuals that he encounters, or between Jesus and the religious authorities. And this has provoked different attitudes to John's gospel. Some people think that if you really want to engage with Jesus, you have to do, th do so through the synoptic gospels. They're much more immediate and direct and, you might think, historical. But other people, perhaps with more discernment, recognize a particular eyewitness quality in John's gospel an authority, an authenticity that draws them back to this gospel again and again. Now that's very interesting. Scholars and commentators have long debated the extent to which when we read John's gospel, we are actually reading the words of an eyewitness, someone who was there at the time and who actually saw and heard what is written down here. Right at the end of his gospel, John writes this. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So I think according to this verse, this statement, we may reasonably accept that John's gospel is actually written by the disciple John. Referred to in the gospel as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved and who accompanied him throughout his ministry. So when we come to look at this passage, let's um, remember that we are probably handling an eyewitness account. And when we look at what Jesus said, this is actually what he did say. And it comes to us today 
to you and to me, therefore, with all his divine authority. And it deserves to be taken with the utmost seriousness. Now, just before we look at the passage, um, let's remind ourselves that we, as Phil was very helpfully um, recapitulating, we're looking at gospels uh, at um, chapters 14, 15, and 16 in John's gospel. It's a section sometimes referred to as the discourse in the upper room. Jesus is gathered with his closest, his nearest disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem, and it's just before his passion, his suffering, and death, and his resurrection. And as we've heard, he's told his disciples that he's going away, and that has made them distressed and troubled and fearful, not unreasonably. Last week, particularly, we looked at that lovely passage where Jesus, amongst the number of promises that he makes, promises to send his Holy Spirit. And when Matt was preaching on this um, passage last week, I recalled um, a tip that was given to me when I was a student at New College in Edinburgh all those years ago, and I happily pass it on if it might prove helpful. Many people find the Holy Spirit difficult and, and mysterious, and they would say, well, who is he? And, and what does the Holy Spirit do? And my teacher in Edinburgh said that it's helpful to think when you think of the Holy Spirit as pointing away from himself to Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus so that we may know him better and love him more and serve him more faithfully. And I found that really helpful and I'm happy to pass it on. Okay, let's look at this passage. I find it quite helpful when looking at a passage like this to ask the question, what's the big idea? What is the dominant, or we might say the controlling idea in this passage that Jesus is trying to get across to us? And I've studied this passage on a number of occasions and at some, at some considerable length, and my conclusion is the big idea here is fruitfulness fruitfulness in the life of the Christian, fruitfulness in your life and in my life, fruitfulness in the life of Magdalen Road Church as we seek to minister to the community around us and to the wider world. And I want to say a couple of things. The first is, what does Jesus mean by fruitfulness in this passage? We'll look at that. And then secondly, I want to think about how we can achieve or demonstrate or show this fruitfulness in our lives. And then there are a couple of outcomes that we might touch on at the end. And we'll look at each in turn. What does Jesus mean here by fruitfulness? Well, let's look again at the opening verses from verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, <clears throat> while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And to help us understand, Jesus gives us a very um, simple <coughs> and a familiar picture, or we might say a parable. He speaks about the vine. Indeed, he calls himself the vine, the true vine, and he uses the divine name, I am the true vine. Now, I guess that we all know about vines and their fruit, grapes, wine. You can't travel very far on the continent without seeing the wonderful vineyards in France or Germany or Italy or Spain or wherever you are. And Jesus' disciples would have been very familiar with the vine, which was then and still is a very common sight across the Middle East. Some of you may know that just a few miles south of Oxford, near Wallingford, there is Oxford's most long-established vineyard. It's called Brightwell. Some of you may know that some of the wine from Brightwell is very pleasant. And I recall that lovely, well, it's, al it's almost an aside in one of the verses in Psalm 104, where the psalmist says, wine that gladdens the human heart. We know about vines. But do we know that vines need to be pruned? And if they are to be truly fruitful, they have to be pruned pretty severely. At the end of every season, when the harvest is over, the grapes are gathered in, the farmer cuts the vines right back. He prunes them very hard so that next year there will be a fruitful harvest. Now, when Jesus' disciples heard uh, this teaching and heard Jesus say this, they would know exactly what he meant. But they would also know that the vine, the picture of the vine, refers in many parts of the Bible to Israel. It is a picture of God's own chosen people. Israel is God's vineyard. And there are <coughs> quite a number of texts <coughs> in the Old Testament that make this plain. But God's people, God's vineyard, had let him down. They'd sinned, and they had rebelled, and they'd proved fruitless. So Jesus, who calls himself the true vine, comes to save and to rescue and to restore God's people and to show them how they were made really and truly to live. And that's just what he's telling us here. We are the branches of the vine, the new Israel, ingrafted into Christ, the true vine. And he, Christ, wants every one of us to be fruitful, to live a fruitful and a useful and a worthy Christian life. But we can only do this if we remain in him. Remain engrafted into him. And if we are pruned. So Jesus is the true vine. Perfect, holy, fruitful. And we, you and I, are the branches. We are his disciples. We are his people who turn to him, who trust him, who depend upon him, 
We cast ourselves upon him. We are the branches, part of the vine, engrafted into the vine, growing as part of the vine, and drawing our strength from the vine. We're not strong in ourselves, but we draw our strength, our help, our spiritual resources from Jesus, who is the true vine. Now, you don't have to be a vine dresser or a farmer or a gardener to see what a powerful picture, what a powerful image this is. When we come to faith, when we become believers, we are engrafted into Jesus. We are united with Jesus. Or to use a theological word, there's a coherence with us and Jesus, who is the true vine, and we are its branches. So I hope you get the picture. And this seems to me to be the very heart of our text and our passage this morning. <clears throat> Jesus says again, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. There's a cutting back, there's a pruning of the vine to make it even more fruitful. Now pruning is painful, and pruning is costly. And in pruning us, God disciplines us to make us even more fruitful in his service. And that is the cost of Christian discipleship. It's something that we must face, we must be prepared for, but not as something bad, but as something good. For God wants us to be even more fruitful in his service. Jesus says in his great Sermon on the Mount, talking about discipleships, thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews puts it like this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Pruning is painful. Paul puts it like this in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. lots to think about here. And I find it, and I'm sure you do too, very challenging. Jesus is giving us a picture of himself as the true and perfect and sinless, infinitely fruitful vine. He's died for us in our place and for our forgiveness. And he's been raised to life and is alive and he reigns. And we who want to follow him are the branches united to him and in him grafted onto him to live his life in the world. And God will prune us to make us even more fruitful. Let me say a bit more about pruning. What exactly does it involve? You'll have your own examples, I'm sure, and perhaps from your own experience. But just let, let me confine myself to this. In our context today, in our 
society here and the world around us, one of the things that bears <coughs> very strongly down upon us, I truly believe, is discouragement. Now, there are many things, don't get me wrong. There are many things to encourage us. There are. And we thank and praise God for them. But let's be honest, there are things around us that discourage us. The general decline of the church in our land. The general decline in Christian things. Growing secularism, godlessness. A growing secularity that often expresses itself in opposition to Christianity and Christian freedom and can be even, even be hostile. And I'm sure you've seen that. So I believe that discouragement and the way we deal with it may be one of the ways that God is pruning us. And the answer I come up with is persistence. We persist in our Christian faith and in our Christian lives. We don't give up. We don't give in. We may be discouraged. But we go on. In his lovely parable of the persistent widow, Luke chapter 18, Luke begins with these words um, of Jesus. Then Jesus told them this parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I had a colleague who was for 30 years a parish minister in the east end of Glasgow, and it was a pretty tough parish, and they don't come much tougher than the east end of Glasgow. And at the end of his years, he was interviewed on the radio, and I happened to hear the interview. And very honestly, and very realistically, and very humbly, because he was, a, in many ways, a very saintly and humble man, he confessed that he often wondered what he had achieved looking back across all those years. He said there were still terrible social problems of crime, and drug abuse, and poverty. And there was widespread indifference and apathy towards the church. There was widespread unbelief. So what, asked the presenter, and I thought rather cheekily, what do you think you've achieved over all these years? And back came this wonderful answer. I persisted. I persisted. And I didn't give up. Well, the first thing in this passage is that we are called to be fruitful. And to show fruitfulness in our lives, we <coughs> do it individually, personally. We do it in the context of our families. We do it in the context of our church, of course. And in our community and across our nation and across our world, fruitfulness. And people will see this. They'll see this fruitfulness in our lives, in our character and in our behavior, in what we say, in what we do, how we relate to one another, in our language and our conversation. They'll see it in how we entertain ourselves. They'll see it in how we spend our money and in the way we express our love for God and for others. And my friends, I'm quite convinced that if we are able to show this fruitfulness to others, they will find it attractive. 
They will even find it compelling because they won't find it in the world around them. And so they can come to encounter Christ for themselves and his church and his kingdom can grow. Well, secondly, and much more briefly, how is this fruitfulness to be achieved? How can we make our lives, our Christian lives, more fruitful and pleasing in God's sight? Well, Jesus makes it plain in the teaching of this passage that we are to remain in him as he remains in us. Or to use another word that's commonly used in some of the translations, to abide in him as he will abide or dwell or live in us. Take it from verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And these words run right Throughout our passage, there are clear instruction to us. We are to remain, to abide, to dwell in Christ as he promises to remain and abide and dwell in us. And here's how we do it. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. We are to love one another as Christ loves us. As Jesus says elsewhere in his gospel, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And we have Jesus clear, repeated, an unambiguous command that we love one another in a truly fruitful Christian life. And in that, we persist. We don't give up. We remain. We abide in Christ, in following him, living under his word, obeying his commands, and so becoming more and more like him. I want to draw to a close, but just a couple more things which I think we can think of as outcomes or consequences of this teaching of Jesus. And first, there is joy. Jesus promises joy to his disciples. Verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You can't read the Bible without seeing that joy is always associated with the tr truly Christian life. And it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. 
But joy is so much more than happiness. I often think that happiness depends upon our immediate circumstances, which may be good or bad, favorable or unfavorable. And the extent that we feel happy or unhappy derives from that. But joy, Christian joy, is surely something much more profound, something much deeper and much more satisfying and much more to be desired. It doesn't relate so much to our circumstances as to our standing, our status before God. And we know what that is. In Christ, he has come to save and rescue us. We are forgiven of our sins, and though they are many, his mercies are more. And Jesus has died in our place to take away fear and guilt and death. And so we can be joyful, whatever our circumstances. We have the promise of eternal life with Jesus. We can start to experience that now upon faith. And we shall know it in all its fullness and richness and completeness in the life to come. No wonder Paul writes in Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And then to this promise, which must have brought the disciples in the upper room such a comfort and is such a comfort to us. To this can be added another Verses 13 and following, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Friends, being friends with Jesus. What a promise. Now, we might look for many things in life, and I'm sure we do. We probably all look to keep healthy. The recent success of the England women's football team, or the Commonwealth Games, so much on the media of the last few days, have had at its heart, much at the heart of it, sporting activities which encourage health and healthy living, and nothing wrong with that. Think about Jesus' ministry and how much time was spent on the healing and on the good health of others. Well, we may want money. Money itself is neutral. It's our motives towards getting it and how we spend it that gives it moral value or not, as the case may be. We may want to be successful and influential. Nothing wrong with ambition, using the gifts that we believe we've been given to serve and promote the good things that we believe in and to serve others. But I submit none of these, important though they may be, can begin to rival friendship with Jesus, to be friends with him, to know him and love him and hear his words and hear his commands, his voice, and to do all that we can to please him. That lovely song, what a friend we have in Jesus. And so I finish by saying that if this is the character, if this is the measure of our Christian lives, 
Yet this is the fruitfulness that comes from remaining and abiding in Christ and he in us. Then this is attractive and winsome and wholesome and good and compelling to others when they encounter it in us. And by God's grace, through us, they will want to come and meet Jesus for themselves. Amen.